Welcome to the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast, a southern harmony of bold, liberating rock, soaked through with blues, soul, and gospel. And now, your hosts for the show, Brian Jones and Jeremy Hunsaker. All right, y'all. Hey, this is Jeremy Hunsaker. Uh, Brian is off this week. He is on vacation with his lovely wife, Kathy. Uh, we want them to have a good time, so I'm flying solo for a moment here with Bird Dog. We got a great, great interview uh, with Daryl Hance that uh, Brian and I recorded with Daryl before Brian went on vacation. And um, before we get to that, real quick, I want to do the bootleg corner uh, this week. One of the legends of taping uh, was Mike Millard, and, and if anybody knows his story, of Mike the Mike um, and has followed along. Well, recently there were a cache of tapes found of shows that he recorded. The guys at Gems have been doing uh, transfers of those. Fantastic stuff. Mike recorded everybody in Southern California from the mid 70s through the early 90s. And um, I downloaded a few of those shows of recent transfers, one of which is a Led Zeppelin show from the forum of uh, June 27th, 1977. And uh, I know 1977 is not exactly the peak of peak years for Zeppelin. There's still some really good stuff, um, especially the no quarters from that era. And uh, me and Nate actually listened to the show and Over the Hills and Far Away, the jam in that one just blew my mind. So um, yeah, Mike Millard, the Mike the Mike recording of uh, 6-27-1977 uh, in Inglewood, L.A. Forum. Uh, check that out. Uh, also, uh, on archive.org, Daryl Hance, who's our guest this week, live at the Elderberry Jam, uh, which, of course, anybody around the area that I'm from is familiar with Elderberry. We have a good time out there. Great recording, good times. Uh, I also recorded Stone Sugar Shakedown the same day. Uh, Driving Wheel played as well. We had a good time. Check that out on Bootleg Corner. Uh, and then, of course, our vinyl picks of the week. I've uh, been listening to um, been listening to some Fleetwood Mac uh, in honor of Peter Green, who passed away a few days ago. Uh, then Play On, out of the box set, uh, remastered by Chris Bellman. Great, great cut, and I hear that there's going to be another box set uh, cut by Chris Bellman coming up of the uh, the mid-period, the Bob Welch period, if you will. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, also, I've got the uh, the Robert Ludwig cut of um, Fleetwood Mac in Chicago, which is Fleetwood Mac jamming with people like Honey Boy Edwards, Willie Dixon, S.P. Leary, uh, just great, great stuff. I mean, the real blues. So anybody that's into uh, into the blues or into Fleetwood Mac, check those out. Fantastic stuff. And if you're not into the blues or not into Fleetwood Mac, check those out anyway because you'll probably get into the blues and get into Fleetwood Mac with it. Uh, I know uh, Then Play On is one of the best albums I've ever heard still to this day. And uh, it doesn't really get any better than the... Uh, than the Chris Bellman cut. And whenever I open up a record, and I touched on this last week with the Steepwater Band and Carl Saff, anytime I see Chris Bellman's initials on the Dead Wax, I'm super excited. I'm like, I know this is going to sound great. Um, so, there you go. That's been my picks, final picks of the week. 
With that, let's get into our interview with uh, Mr. Daryl Hands. Hey, Brian, take it away. Welcome to the third episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. We're back with a, a really good guest here. He's got three albums out. His latest is Wild Blue Iris. A guitar player from Jacksonville, Florida. We have with us today Mr. Daryl Hans. How are you doing, Daryl? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing there? We are good. How are you, Jeremy? You know, I am making it. Having a delayed start to the week, but I'm up. I'm ready. Glad to be catching up. Yeah, you know, I, too, man. Been a while. You know, yeah. I got to tell you, Daryl, uh, Jeremy recently turned me on to your music, so you're like a new artist to me, which is really, really awesome. You know, I was listening to... Uh, uh, live at Rob's place from 2019, and what what should come up with uh, Bob Dylan's Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35. I enjoyed that quite immensely. Oh yeah, we uh, I just like learned it like a few days before we went in there. No, so what you're hearing is the only time it was ever played or anything. You just kind of about you know boom <laughs> that quick. Just turned right, out right. cool. It turned out cool. I left it off the official album. I just put it on like the YouTube. Didn't want to do all that, having to right. clear it and all that shit. So, well, you've got th- three records out. You want to talk about that and how you, how you got started with that? Uh, yeah, I was uh on the uh the JJ Mofro bus for about uh ten years. We had played it. We we had been playing together for twenty, and um during that time, I was stoking stoking stocking. Uh, my songs away, you know, just kept coming up with songs and more songs and finally jumped off the boat in 2010 and recorded my first album, Hallowed Ground, and started touring on that. That's where I met Jeremy. We played a show together back then in Columbia, not the the country, but the city, Columbia, Missouri, where y'all are at, or where he's at. And then uh, I toured on that for about a year and a half, took some time off and recorded uh my second record during that time i was doing a lot of housework yard work fixing stuff and recorded land and trembling earth in 2012 and 13 and put it out in 14 and, and then a couple years later did the wild blue hours record that was in 2016 and then toured off that for a out of six or eight months and then uh and then recorded my fourth record and got it all about got about two weeks from being done on it and the computer shit in the bed and then uh <laughs> and it's been pretty much on the back burner for the past three years but i've been kind of taking time off dealing uh with some wrapping up some family stuff and and kind of try to stay off the road a little bit you know and just play sporadically around the region quite within a you know a few hours of jacksonville started kind of gearing up last year and did that uh, live at Rob's place, like a live in the living room album, pulling songs from the first three records, and uh, then the COVID thing hit in March. Everything got canceled, so I've been sitting here <laughs> uh, trying to get the trying to get the uh, the live streaming thing happening right now. So, uh, so what else have you been doing during that downtime? Um, about the same, man. Just uh, doing a lot of work on the house in the yard and basically i'm just taking apart part my house and putting it back together so i've been spending the past five six five five or six years doing that a lot of my time i've been trying to figure out this streaming thing how to make it work you know i mean i've been i've done it on the old iphone here before but try to do it with the software and 
where you can uh, I can use good mics and a mixer and pipe it in stuff all that shit into the internet. So a, a little tricky. Well, you know we've got an audio uh, technician with us here. I think Jeremy might uh, have some tips for you with that. He's uh, quite encyclopedic with that, and I'm very grateful for that on our show. I'll tell you what, man, he uh, knows his stuff up and down. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little, man, it's a little, it seems like it's a different animal there, you know, just to get all the, uh, the get it synced up and working right. And a little, uh, little interesting bit, uh, Daryl said, you know, he met us in 2010. Daryl actually jammed with Driving Wheel in 2010. Yeah. You, know, you can go on uh, archive.org, you can hear that show, and, and uh, Daryl has his own page as well with some live shows up on that um, from back in the day. Yes, back during the, that was back during my learning phase. Yeah, it, it, it is, man. It's a learning curve the whole way. I had never sung in front of anybody publicly until the fall of 2009. So I finally got the hang of it the past two or three years. <laughs> Been a long, strange trip, though. Well, in listening to your stuff, Daryl, I've, I've found that you're like a very diverse guitar player, very diverse styles. I can't really, you know, put you in any, I don't think you can be put in any specific uh, category. And I was telling Jeremy, I told you earlier when we were messaging, I just love the description here on your Facebook. Uh, it says, Daryl Hans returns with another, with another dusty slab, a southern flavored psychedelic swampy groove music. With enough hearty sides to satisfy anyone whose appetite consists of pre-1975 or so funk and blues-inspired rock and roll music fortified with searing bluesy guitars, fuzzy super fat, super fat vintage tones, heaps of bottom end, and transcendental songs high on life, hope, fun, love, and living. <laughs> yeah, it's got, you, ha- you kind of have to get a little bit more descriptive nowadays. You can't just say you know rock or you know there's so much shit out there and different variations of stuff you know kind of you kind of have to you're almost forced to over explain everything but you know i guess that does paint a pretty good picture though especially trying to just because just like southern rock you say southern rock people automatically push you know the almond brothers or leonard skinner or molly hatchet you know, they don't, you know, but there's a lot of other variations that, especially nowadays, man, there's so many variations of Southern rock and, you know, well, for that matter, every other genre out there too. So. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's a big goal of the show, like to really go deeper on that and, uh, and to really show how diverse Southern rock is. And it's not amalgamation of, you know, rock and roll and blues and some country, maybe a little bit of, you know, uh, of uh you know dixie and and bluegrass and a little bit of funk you know it's like like you said you know it's like i think people just have this kind of uh this one directional stereotype like image of what what they think it is and then blues as well because there's you know there's you know there's the mississippi hill country blues Mm -hmm. piedmont and delta besides just the chicago style so that's something we really hope to be doing more on the show and have people talk about that how much deeper it is than just the name of a genre Oh yeah, definitely. Across the board with all of it, man. Just like, especially like you said with blues and southern rock in particular. Kind of like Greg Allman said, I seen him in an interview one time where he was talking about it's like saying rock, rock, you know, because all the music, you know, rock and roll is all influenced by stuff, you know, from the 
southern United States through, a, I guess, through a British filter, you know, right. which is which is which is odd, man. It's just so funny how did uh how it transpired like that. I mean, that it all was reintroduced to the uh, white America through the British invasion, you know, and bands like the Stones that you know flew it as their flagship, you know, put it in front of everybody so they could see it. Because I mean, personally for me. Coming up in Jacksonville, I had I had no idea what the blues was until the first time I heard the blues. It was on some radio show in nineteen eighty-eight. A friend gave me this cassette tape he recorded off a blues show in Gainesville. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. It had like Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry on it, uh Mance Lipscomb and a few others. And that was the only thing I'd ever heard of the blues, and I liked it, but I didn't, I didn't know. Back then, the only thing where you heard music is MTV and the local AOR station. You know you know what they're piping in. You know, this, the same shit is from the 80s. So there's nowhere back then that you would really hear blues unless you just happened to have it in your record collection or knew somebody that had those records. And, you know, when, me and my friend, we knew nobody that had blues records, you know. It just wasn't there. You know, everybody was like pumping like Motley Crue and Rat and Duran and everything, which is fine and all. But, you know, it's just strange how, you know, you come from the South and you have to get reintroduced. You have to get introduced to the blues to, you know, you know, British music or, you know, or some other way, you know. Or for me, how I kind of got in into it was, uh, with like the Beastie Boys, just hearing the Beastie Boys and all the samples and stuff, they and all the names they would drop into their their rhymes and stuff. And you start go kind of digging around and figuring out who all these people are. Then that and kind of then I, you know tuning into Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and then kind of reading articles and news stories and uh, just they would say different names and. You'd, yeah, I'd end up going to a record store and maybe pick up an old Muddy Waters record and and just kind of just kept getting stuff like that, you know. But uh, it's just funny how the like how the blues resonated so deeply with uh those British kids like back in the you know fifties and sixties. I guess in that post World War Two era, man, you know they come up you know uh, pretty hard. You know, I don't think things were as plentiful over there as, you know, for the general public as they were. Like in the South, there's always, you know, there's plenty of places to go fishing down here and get food, deer hunt, and stuff like that. I think it's probably a little bit more lean over there in Britain, at least for the normal people. But, I mean, I even went through a, a phase, you know, like uh, where I kind of wrote off all that British stuff, like Led Zeppelin. Man, those guys suck, you know, for a while <laughs> Man, the Stones, they suck, man. They're British. Fuck that, you know. Then, and then I kind of refell in love with it, man, about 10 or 15 years ago. Kind of went, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, there's a lot more here than just, you know, people ripping off the blues or stuff, ripping off the blues and, you know, selling it back to, selling it back to everybody, you know, presenting as their own. But it's just like, you, you think like, with the, what if the Stones had never, you know, insisted like Howlin' Wolf be part of their show or, you know, and reintroduce that the blues, those blues artists back to the American audience. You know, it kind of makes you wonder how things would have turned out, you know. You mentioned Skinner. Uh, Skinner from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, yeah. Ronnie Bean's favorite band was 
Stones. They were like his biggest influence. And uh, Gary Rosington, you can really hear the uh, influence of Free and Paul Kossoff. And uh, Alan Collins is a big Eric Clapton fan of Cream. Yeah. So the, the ironic thing is, you know, this music was right here in our, in our, literally in our backyard. And it took these bands from England, bringing it back and inspiring, you know, dudes from Jacksonville yeah. to uh, start that. And then that became, quote unquote, Southern Rock, which is a hugely British influence. Yeah, it's pretty wild, man. It's, I guess with the bands like Skinner and the Almond Brothers, uh, back when they were coming up in, I guess, the 60s, I guess blues was more accessible maybe then um, as far as it being found in record stores and maybe being played on some stations. I don't know. I'm just guessing because they, they had to get that blues influence. Or maybe they just did like I did, you know, just when they hear the stalls and stuff, they start pulling it. Oh, he's talking about Muddy Waters, you know, and Howlin' Wolf, and they go checking it out and, you know, had their mind blown, you know, the same way. And it was just really, really, it was hard to find if you didn't know it was there, you know, back when I was coming up in the in the 80s. You know, it's like, the blues, what's that, you know? It's kind of weird. How big was the Skinner influence on you being that you're from Jacksonville as well as they were? Uh, not until the past, you know, probably 15 or 20 years. Because I was kind of a late bloomer on Skinner because the only thing I'd ever heard is on the, the two or three songs on the radio, and there was no live, you know, you couldn't go pull up on YouTube, obviously, you know, the, all the live stuff. And then even recently, man, I started going through pulling up these all, all these old live shows of theirs from the 70s, from the mid-70s, and it's just like, God damn, man, it's just unbelievable how great those guys were, you know, the power the arrangements of the guitars too man three guitar right. players really stepped on each other yeah and they're not stepping on each other at all like you say man just uh all all that stuff woven together pretty amazing you know there's a there's one show in particular from winterland in 1970 i think it's in 75 yep. and uh i read into it and there was no the, the key billy powell the keyboard player didn't play on the show that night apparently he got tore up the night before and wasn't able to play or I guess we was hung over is what I read anyway. They played the show without a keyboard player and I didn't even notice it until like a way where's Billy Powell at? And they, it was just like so fucking good. You know, even without that it just shows you the depth of that band man. Just the just the key, key integral part of that remove for one night and it's just like they just keep going like nothing. Like, okay, this is how we're rolling tonight. Let's do it. You know? And just Awesome. It's on YouTube, man. It's uh, Skinnerd uh, Winterland 1975. It's like March, April 75, something last. Really good. We're talking Stones and Skinnerd. You know, uh, really funny story. I've heard Keith Richards talk about when he very first met uh, Mick Jagger shortly after that, whatever, and their kids. And, you know, Mick comes up with all these, you know, blues 45s under his arm and it's like, He's like, hey man, where'd you get where'd you get the records? <laughs> yeah. They were friends when they were little kids right. in school, and then they were a little older a few years later. And Keith Richards uh, noticed, and they were 12 inches, uh, the best of Muddy Waters and Rockin' at the Hop. Chuck Berry were the two records they had. And Keith's like, hey man, great to see you. Uh, I don't care how you're doing. Where'd you get the records? <laughs> <laughs> um, huge influence on on everybody, I think, um, for sure. And, uh, and, and speaking of live shows, uh, we have a segment that we do on a show called the uh, the Bootleg Corner. 
And uh, I mentioned a bootleg uh, from your old band that uh, one of my favorites. And I was wondering if you give the little any memories of the Boom Boom Room in 2002. Was it 2002? 2002. Uh, yeah, we played there a, a couple times about there. I, I, I remember playing there in 2001. Oh, yeah, okay, I do remember 2002. That, that was a, that whole area, the, time was kind of a, a big blur we played so much back then but that was usually one of the bright spots on the map is san francisco especially back then man because that jam band live scene was really uh blossoming or it already blossomed and you know just you'd go from town to town and there'd be pockets of people there pockets of people then you get this like san francisco and it's like an oasis and you know really good but but yeah the boom room and that place is always always really cool yeah it's a little, a little small little tight stage man looks like a little pub cram 150 people in there and yeah i don't i don't know who recorded that show there was there were so many tapers back then uh i don't know if they still do that as much but uh there were a lot of them around back then um I, i'm not sure who who, who recorded that Boom Boom Room show? But that room just definitely has a party vibe in it. You know, I think regardless of who's really playing there, people just like to go there. I think it's right. I think it's right by the Fillmore, right next door to it. Yeah, it's a, a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You know, back in that, back in those days. You know, early on until you get about a couple more, a couple more years into the touring, kind of starts to wear on you a bit, a lot. You know, the, but the first two or three years was really. I had a lot of fun the first two or three years, you know, because that by that point we were just had never t really toured, you know, consistently. You know, the, we we had a me and uh, JJ had a couple of bands before that in the '90s. That band come together in '98, and so it was like '92, about three years before we actually started touring with it. And so once we got uh, the rust knocked off and got out there and started you get going, get with the flow of it and everything had a lot of fun for you know like i said two or three years until it uh until it starts to become a little bit it was like it don't stop which is good but the party can't last forever you know the attention span of a lot of listeners seems like it's kind of waned a little bit yeah i still i had i don't take as much as i used to obviously right now because of the pandemic but i did go see a band uh here in town on saturday and i taped them and Hell, I taped, I went to Elderberry and I, I taped your set last time you were in town around here. And, oh, yeah, you know, playing play on the piece of plywood. That was, yeah. that was on a slope. It was on a little bit of a slope. I remember that, or it's maybe like that. It's a little tricky. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, there's so much. There's so the thing about tape, just the in music in general nowadays, there is so much information out there. And it's like everybody and, eight members of their family are releasing a new record this week and they're all streaming it and putting it on it. So it's just like the amount of information that's on the internet is so overwhelming. You know, it's just, it's, you're like a needle on a, sta a stadium full of needles sometimes, you know, especially now, you know, the past few months, like where the only outlet really is the internet. If you want to play, you know, live, you got, you just, you know, hook your, start plugging your computer up, you know. And so Daryl, I'm wondering, uh, if you had the same uh, band through all these records, or if you played with different people, if you could talk about that a little bit. Oh, yeah, they're all different people. By the time I played with uh, Jeremy there in Columbia, 
had a pretty good lineup then. Not that any of the other lineups weren't great, but that that particular lineup with a uh, Jake Weinbrenner on drums and Bill Block on the bass was was pretty you know pretty solid then. But we only got to play a little bit because Jake lived in Nashville and Bill lived in uh, New Orleans. So we just kind of meet up in Nashville for that tour and went. But I didn't have enough uh, momentum going to sustain that, you know, as far as having enough money coming in. And when you're doing all the booking and all the everything, there's, you know, it takes, you know, months to set up that stuff in advance. And it's kind of hard to book another tour when you're, you know, driving around the country. So you just kind of have to pace yourself. And, you know, what I would do is I would go out and play, you know, say book a tour, a three-week tour, go out, play it, come home, recover, start setting up the next one. And it would usually take me two or three months in between tours to get it, you know. And by then, people have gone off and, you know, got other gigs. So pretty much, uh, not every tour, but a lot of them has been different lineups, especially early on. Then uh, around 2014, uh, I got a pretty solid lineup with me, Cameron Weeks, and Sean Tarleton on the bass. And then it was a little tricky with the three piece. So, uh, me and Cameron just rolled as a two piece to save money and a little bit easier to sleep two people in a van than three. The third person, it's like we could roll with two people. So we, we did that for a couple years and then, um, that took some time off, but Cameron lived in Wilmington. So then, uh, started playing with B Gale who lives here in Jacksonville. And she was actually the first Mofro drummer that toured with us way back in 2001. So I've been playing with her since like 2016, since 2015, but solidly since about 2016. Been rolling with her as a two-piece, less the re- live at Rob's place recording. I pulled in a bass player and a keyboard player from here for those, for that recording, and to place a bunch of shows. And But it was a little, little difficult getting the whole four-piece on the uh, road because those guys are you know, kind of tied to day jobs and reality a little bit more. Um, whereas B is a little bit more flexible to go on the road, and I always keep myself kind of flexible. So now I'm kind of back to uh, two-piece in the few intermittent gigs I've been doing. I did, I've done one show since March, and that was in Tampa. And that was a little weird because nobody's really going out right now to be people there. But it was good to play out nonetheless, you know. Pretty much where I'm at now. Once this stuff blows over, hoping it does, and we don't get COVID 20 and 21 and 22, fucking, fucking or whatever, fucking, you know, bubonic plague 666, <laughs> you know, and 667. But uh, assuming it's going to, you know, everything wraps up in the next few months or in the next year, you know, probably start back off with a two piece and then try to start building a little bit from there. It's just starting to bring in another keyboard player. Uh, Tom Bennett to try try it with him. Uh, he also does a left-handed bass thing and try to pull it off as a three-piece. But uh, we got to play one gig and then the pandemic hit, so everybody's kind of went back to their corners for the time being until until this uh, fiasco was over. Man, I love that uh, like keyboard, like that stuff that's like on Intervisions and. Uh, even some of that stuff that's like on some Led Zeppelin's got some songs that has that on there, and a lot, of, a lot of that stuff from the '70s does. You know that people using that key bass, man, man, it's just 
you know, especially if you can find a uh, someone who does the left hand and can play the you know organ or clap or whatever, excuse me, or whirly with the right hand, man, it just makes it a little easier to roll as a you know a three piece than a four piece, you know. At least on the uh, budget budget touring. Yeah, I think everybody does budget touring now, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was kind of the plan. I like it. I like that. Uh, I like the tone of that. But I also like the string bass too. Thank but you. I, but I run well, as a two piece. I've been running through the the pog or an octave, and no one's complained about there being a lack of you know low end or anything. So it's just a uh, don't get to do as many hot leads and stuff like that. It's just kind of more rhythm, but. But it works. What 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 were you, uh, Brian? What was you saying? Uh, where was we going next? I didn't forgot. Well, just tying into uh, the, the touring that you do, I was just curious as to to where do you uh, specific regions of the country that you tour? Do you go all over? Any specific festivals or blues festivals do you play? Um, so far, just the lower forty-eight. I bet you. I bet out to the west coast about four or five times. Uh, Go to the Northeast a lot, sometimes the Midwest. Uh, usually hit the Midwest on the way out west. Um, a lot, a lot around North Carolina, Florida, and uh, Georgia. Not so much on the festivals because uh, uh, traditionally I've been the booking agent, and uh, it's just it's a little tricky. You know, you got to know who does the festival and then get you know keep uh, on them for a maybe. So I just focus my energies toward uh, clubs, you know, unless it's one just drops in my lap or something for the most part. Uh, I played a few around Florida this past year. Kind of opened up a little bit here. Played one called the uh, Everglades Roots Festival down in South Florida um, back in January. Uh, played the Animaceras Rock and Roll People's Party in Central Florida. They do that every year. That's always a lot of fun. But mainly, mainly those, you know, I'm a, uh, and the one out there, the, the Alderberry Festival did that that one year and um, a couple of others here and there, mostly clubs. I really like the breweries because, hey, they pay you and you usually get a beer or two. And it's usually music lovers. That always helps. Seems like you get a lot less chattiness at uh, that some of the breweries because people, I guess it's uh quality beer drinkers like music not the bud light crowd yeah i'm sure they like music too but yeah it seems like the people just in general these breweries man not all of them but a lot of them it's just there's a little bit more of a music lover crowd so daryl who are your main influences probably everything man uh most everything i like is uh kind of like it says in that bio like pre-1975 blues funk soul music and rock and roll inspired rock and roll music, you know, so probably Sly Stone, Jimi Hendrix, The Stones, Skinner, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, you name it, man, just uh, all the old blues artists, you know, just any of the older music, I, you know, it starts getting up into the, the 80s and and to the modern area, I tend to like less and less of it, like the 80s, I like I like the, the early Van Halen stuff a lot, well, that's kind of really 1970s, but, uh, they had a lot of ZZ Top in them back then. Yeah, yeah. Man, ZZ Top's another one I've gotten into recently. Their older stuff, man, is really great. Um, as far as the 80s, the only thing I really 
liked about the 80s is probably you 2 and the police and uh, probably not a lot from there. And I'm, I'm not a huge fan of what U2 does anymore, but I love what they did not in the, the 80s and 90s. I love the Beastie Boys. A lot of the hip-hop stuff, man, has held up well, like Public Enemy and the X-Clan. and oh, uh, Great. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Wow. Paul's, my favorite is Check Your Head, but, man, I love, I love all the stuff from the Beastie Boys, man. Paul's Boutique, too, man. It's just so weird how that album just got, like, completely overlooked, you know. Well, it, it was it wasn't licensed to ill part two you know yeah yeah and it was so far out there man just in their use of samples and i mean you can it, that record is a a pat beach of 60s and 70s uh funk rock music it really is something else still to this day ahead of its time i think oh yeah definitely when it come out i didn't hear it because i wasn't super into the beastie boys at that time but i remember seeing a, a promo on MTV about it, and they were talking about it when it come out. And then that was the last I heard of anything until until Check Your Head come out. Now, I think, well, for whatever reason, man, when they dropped Check Your Head, and that's when everything kind of really took off for them in the second phase where, you know, people started paying attention to them again. Yeah. Man, that's, that's, that's probably one of my top... It's definitely in my top five favorite albums of all time. You know, probably that one of those Led Zeppelin albums, uh, Leonard Skinner's first record, uh, one of those Stones albums from uh, 60, 68 through 72 or three or four, somewhere in there. Those, those are probably the police ghost in the machine and the Joshua tree or man. Those are all probably my favorite records a police song invisible sun from ghost in the machine oh yeah yeah that's just so good man that uh, that's the first album that i really kind of latched on to as far as rock music goes um my sister uh actually both of my sisters and their boyfriends all gave each other i think it was a christmas of 1980 the zenyata or however the hell you pronounce it he had just come out and they all give it every one of them bought it for each other for a Christmas gift and they didn't know it. So one of them got a, one of them got an eight track tape. The other one got a cassette. Somebody got an LP. I didn't know who the hell the police were at the time. I mean, I was like 11 years old, but my sister, she ended up getting a Regatta de Blanc, the eight track for ghost in the machine. And I kept hearing that Regatta album through my bedroom wall. And then I heard she started playing Ghost in the Machine. And then uh, then I went into her room when she wasn't there and snagged that Ghost in the Machine eight track out of her room and stuck it in mine. That's all I listened to for about a year, just air drumming to Stuart Copeland. I mean, I was probably, what, uh, I was 12, 11, 12, 13, something like that. That's the, that the first, you know, rock album that I really affect, that affected me. And then from there, I just started, you know, listening to all kinds of stuff, especially, especially when I moved back to Florida. In like 1983, because everybody in Jacksonville was a lot more into rock music, and there was, a, you know, where I was, where I lived before, south of Atlanta, it was a lot more. Uh, I don't know what it was, just, just, just people. Maybe just the age I was, but just like nobody was really in super into music. This, you know, there's a few people were more, more people were other doing bullshit, like playing video games were heavy or big at the time. You know, but people were the people my age were more into that. But once I moved to 
uh, back to Florida, where all my family's from, in 83, man, everybody I was around was all, like, heavily into 70s rock, you know, 60s and 70s rock, so I got exposed to it, you know, through that. And through my, my sisters had always had, like, a lot of records. My mom, they had all, the, like, the Credence Clearwater Revival and stuff like that. So I got to hear a lot of that stuff when I was when I was a kid. But most of that stuff was like they would buy singles. They wasn't too much into that. There was a few albums around, but most of the stuff was like singles. One of the first singles I really kind of dug into was David Bowie Fame. Yeah, with the meters playing on it, which I didn't know it back then, but I used to play that record a lot. Uh funk record right there. But... Yeah, yeah, it's probably it's probably I remember that and probably Stevie Wonder Superstition is probably the, some of the first my first being exposed to it back in the when I was a kid and didn't know that's probably what got me tuned into groovy music. So how about your contemporaries, Daryl? You know, people have been playing uh, right around the same time as you uh, out there on the circuit. Uh, as far as uh, people, you, yeah. Who do you respect? Who do you like to play with? Who who are you listening to? I don't listen to a whole lot of new stuff, but I mean, I got a lot of friends that like the Greyhounds. I really like those guys a lot. I love what they do. Uh, I mean, I, I love the Mofro stuff, JJ stuff, same difference, but you know, um, Spooky Daily Pride, he's a guy out of Boston. He was around a lot back in the, uh, in the early mid two thousands. We toured a lot with him. He's great. Uh, Played a lot of around here too. A lot of the swag. yeah, 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 yeah. Missouri. He was around in Missouri a lot too. We played a lot of shows out there together and or in festivals. And then uh, I like Chuck Prophet a lot. I'm trying to think of some people I like. Man, I like all. I like the Galactic stuff. I like, I like the Galactic guy. Those guys are really nice too. So we used to play with those guys a lot. I just like all music. But I just kind of tend to gravitate toward the you know the seventies, sixties, and seventies and before the but. Um, but those are the most of the people I like nowadays. Yeah, Eugene Eugene Snowden, he's another artist out of Orlando. They, he he's really great. I'm trying to think of some more people. Uh, but th- those are probably the, those are probably the main ones. Probably some I'm forgetting. But. I said it's always great to hear about new artists I haven't heard before and get get to check them out. So you yeah. got a guitar there with you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just give me something to mess around with while I'm talking. Seems like it's a little bit easier to talk. I mean, you gotta, you got a little guitar with you. Play a song or two for the podcast. It's called uh, "Vindication from Above." It's on uh, Wild Blue Hours. Sailing away, you never know how to pay it all. You never know when you might have to take another run. Yeah, and take everything you know and throw it right there or out the door. Yes, take everything you know and throw it right there or out the door. They say la na 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 na. 
la na 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 Just take everything and I'll throw right there out the door It's a funny thing when you don't know which way to go You might just have to roll any old way the wind blows Yeah, and take everything and I'll throw right there out the door Yes, take everything and I'll throw right there out the door. And say la na da na 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 Yes, take everything and I'll throw right there out the door. And say. There's a long way here, long go way back home. There's a long way here, long go way back home. So if you don't like the way it goes, stop right now and change the room. So if you don't like the way it goes, just stop right now and change the room. Right on, right on. That's some great stuff from Daryl Hans. Thank you for playing that for us. Oh, yeah, man. Absolutely. Good shit. I hope it sounded good on that end. I got a little, I got a little webcam here. Webcam. Oh, yeah. Technological advances. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Wild Blue, Wild Blue Iris is, is fantastic. Um, I, I love all of your albums. Uh, I don't have a physical copy of the uh, Live at Rob's Place, but uh, Hallowed Ground is still one of my favorites, period. Um, I wear the T-shirt all the time. and, and uh, you know, it was, it was, still it was, got a T-shirt? Still got that T-shirt, brother. Oh, you know, wow. it, it, was, it, was, it was such a good time in my life. And uh, you know how you associate music with memories you know oh yeah 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 i always associate that record with uh you know good shows and and uh playing out you know I a girlfriend i was with at the time we were really you know having a good time in life and you know my daughter was really young and it was just the future was wide open and that record kind of represents that to me you know <laughs> oh cool man well, i dig it man like uh, yep. that was the first one out of the canon AC's on drums on that one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Anthony Cole, yeah, he, he's on he's on drums on that. Greyhound reference right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to play that uh, that record. We uh, recorded that record. We had been playing. I, I've been touring with Mofro and JJ, and we uh we get off of tours. I go play shows with with uh Anthony Cole and uh. And a guy from here in Jacksonville, Shane Platt, and we go do shows and stuff. So we had about a better part of a year, you know, to kind of run those songs down on that first record. So 
it's pretty fun. Yeah, pretty fun experience. That first one. Okay, just an old school, you know, vintage analog type vibe going on with that one. Yeah, we recorded that down the uh, uh, Jim and DeVito's in uh, San Augustine Retrophonic Studios. It's where all the Momofro records were recorded. I recorded that one there then, um, with a three-piece band. And then the other two I recorded at uh, JJ's house. He lived about five miles down the road. By the time I got him a second album, he had a recording set up at his house out in his egg room. And I... I'd go over there and record out there. Played all I played all the instruments on the the second record, except for a few. I got uh, him to do a couple of overdubs here and there, but but that was a did that more more of a necessity, you know. Just so I wouldn't have to call up musicians and stuff. I could just go to easily done. But also, it's to do everything all that to engineer a record and record all the instruments, all that shit. You know, it's just it's a lot of work. <laughs> When you start to get into it, man, you get in. It's, it's enough of a headspace just recording a record, much less trying to engineer the thing and do the songs and play them all. It's a lot of work. And then the the Blue Iris record, I recorded that as a sort of as a two piece. I, I got the drummer I had at the time, Cameron Weeks. Uh, we went over to the back to the egg room and uh, got set up in there, and we recorded about. 10 or 12, 13 songs. And then he took all back to North Carolina. And then when I got back in there to listen to it, kind of go over it, there's a, a few of them I had to hit again because we didn't quite nail the, the vibe of a few of them. So I, so I had to go back through and do the redo them, you know, then play the drums on there, which I hate. But uh, I actually got him to record, overdub some stuff too that I'd previously done. You know, and then just kind of go through and start layering the instruments on. And then I had another guy. Speaking of, you know, modern artists, modern artists, contemporaries, this guy, Reed Turchie, he's out of uh, North Carolina. And uh, he played slide guitar on um, a couple of the tracks on there, on the Blue Hours. On the, actually, on, he played on the instrumental, that the instrumental Wild Blue Hours. He played... Uh, the slide guitar on that, and he also played the slide on "Always Be Around." That uh, more so, I, uh, I just like I said, it's that kind of necessity, so you didn't have to kind of get somebody out there and showing all that stuff because kind of we're kind of out in the sticks out here. So, and then the album I'm working on, or have been, have been working on, which would be the fourth studio album. I did the same thing on that record, but then I got B. Gail, my current drummer, to go back and play over the drum tracks I did. And I ended up not using most of the drum tracks I did because they sounded like shit after listening to her play. She, she's like, she's like really, really fucking good. Like, uh, sometimes you have to get the drummer, okay, it goes like this, like, doom, doom, bop, doom, doom, bop. And with her, you just, just push record and whatever she plays just fits with what I do for what, you know. Just a really good fit, natural fit. She, I don't really have to show her, tell her what to play or anything. She just kind of naturally gets it, which is great. Whenever I get that record out, so you'll be able to hear Bigel playing, so you know, slaying some drum tracks. But she's on live at Rob's place, isn't she? Yeah, 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 yeah. Those, those are I recorded that in a Rob Rob Pidinger, he's the bass player that plays on that. 
he uh, he lives in St. Augustine. We recorded it in his den in about three hours. I just went in there the night before and set up the mics and all kind of lo fi recording. You know, I actually run the uh, mic, the kick drum up with a your kick drum mic, whatever they're called. The, the ones they use in live music, uh, some kind of bet, sure bet. I, I can't remember what it is. And I ran it back through a QSC to get the bottom in and then just recorded it all with this microphone right here. Oops, about to turn my table over here. But uh, this microphone right here, if you can see that, I don't know if you can see it, but that mic there recorded recorded the whole bottom end, the drum and bass and everything with that one mic. So that live recording was, yes, that live recording is a, that Rob's place is four tracks. There's like a vocal track, guitar, keyboard, and then the room mic this thing right here for the room mic and that's it so it's for so i doubled the i think the the keyboard and the guitars i duplicated the tracks to kind of pan it out a little to get a little bit of a pan in it and then that's pretty much it and record it to a four track tape machine and then then slung it in pro tools and edited it and everything i was actually really surprised it come out as good as it did and some of the, the instrumental, a couple of the instrumental jams on there, the, uh, the Sunshine and Blue Skies and Fire Up Those Reefers were recorded with, uh, was actually, uh, I was over there at Rob's and uh, we was doing some other shit you know, after we'd already recorded, you know, most of the tracks and we were just, he was, I was about to pack up everything and go and he's, he's like, man, let's just jam a little bit. So we started jamming. And it, me, him, and B, and it started sounding good. Or me, him, B, and Brad, and just started sounding good. And so I just pressed record with one little old mic, this uh, Sennheiser, little Sennheiser condenser mic. Just pushed record and recorded that whole thing with one microphone. Just weird. Just just turned out his his den sounds really good. It's uh, just got a really good sound in there. That's how they used to do it for all the best records back in the day. It was just a mic or two, and, and they played, and you knew how the room sounded dictated, how the recording would sound, and how yeah. the players would play. You know, it wasn't wasn't all pro-tooled up and edited and, uh, you know, putting, uh, what do they call them, uh, patches on there and, and yeah. you know, plug-ins. None of that crap, man. It was real players just jamming in a room and how the room sounded and how what the mic picked up was what they went with yeah that's what it, that's the way i like to record ideally i mean when i record even when i do stuff like record songs by myself it's i don't fix anything i just treat the pro tools like it's a tape deck you know and just if i screw up okay start over because you know, i mean i thought you spend more time trying to fix shit good at going down that rabbit hole and just you know, just record it again. I mean, it only takes a minute, you know, right. and instead of spending, I mean, you find yourself in there spending hours and hours and days trying to fix something, you know, I did, I did that with my second record. I had a, well, actually I had an accident. I recorded a song, which was, it's called a trembling earth. It's a, it's toward the end of the land trembling earth record, but I recorded it with a one man band set up. But the kick drum I was using, when I got in there and started uh, trying to add to it, and I was like, man, there ain't no bottom end of this kick drum, man. It's just like, it's down below. It's just, but the, the take was great. 
So I went in there and recorded a with a good kick drum. Well, the kick drum I recorded was one of his old pearls that was made out of metal and fiberglass. So there, there's no bottom end to it. You get down below a certain thing. It sounds good, but when you if you want to get that subsonic thump, you ain't gonna get it. So I got a a, a good wood uh, kick drum and went back and just played back to it like this, you know. Just, but it's a real quick song, da da da, <laughs> like that. So there's probably ten thousand damn uh, kick drums in there, and I had to go back through the whole three four minute song and line up each kick drum so it matched perfectly, you know, with the with the drum with no bottom to it. I guess Pro Tools does have its uses, you know, but typically I would just record the whole thing again. But by that point, I'd already broke down the setup, and it's like, man, this is such a good take. I don't want to lose it, you know, just because the kick drum don't have no bottom. Uh, I know there's some things you can do where it'll, it'll fly into sounds and line all that stuff up automatically, but, you know, I didn't feel like learning all that stuff. So sometimes it's the things you can do with that. Man, Pro Tools and some of that digital shit's great, but I find that I probably the only thing I really use in Pro Tools is the uh, the thing to magnify stuff up, to close down the fades and consolidate regions, and the record button, you know, and of course the faders and stuff, you know. But as far as all the other bells and whistles and stuff, I use very very little of, you know, the whole thing. But I guess it's great, man. If you're doing movies. And all these bigger production things, I guess that's where all that stuff comes into play. But if you're just trying to record, you know, a four-piece rock and roll band, four or five-piece rock and roll band, you know, an overdub, you don't really need it all. We'll tell you what, guys, it's been really fascinating for me. I get to listen to two two, uh, musicians, you know, talk about their music and the technical aspects and all that. And that's really, I love that about this. And I look forward to listening to more of your stuff, Daryl. It's been just really great. Jeremy, you got anything else for our guest? Oh, man, just, uh, you know, good talking to you again. And, and uh, hope, yeah, uh, hopefully. I hope so, man. I hope so, man. And I uh, hope, to, hope to hear this fourth album and hope to see you soon. Maybe we can play a show together again. Yeah, yeah. When I when get uh, fired back up here, man, I'll, I'll holler at you, man. We'll definitely put something together. Um, hopefully, like say, like you said, there. Hopefully, it won't be too long when everything will be back out. Guess we'll find out one way or the other. Well, that'd be yeah. great to have some uh, driving wheel Daryl Hand shows coming up. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome, man. It's good, man. Good talking to y'all. Then good to me- good to meet you, Brian. You too, Daryl. It's a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. So once again, we want to thank our guest Daryl Hans for joining us on this third episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again, Daryl. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys, man. Y'all take it easy. All right, and that's been our interview with Daryl Hans. Uh, we're gonna play Daryl Hans tune coming up. Let's see here. Always be around from the Wild Blue Iris album. It's a great song. I love this song. So check that out. After that, stick around for a little special bonus extra jammy jam jam. Y'all be safe. Take care of each other. Have a great weekend from Brian and Jeremy at the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast.
take it down to the Juke House, boys. Let's take it on down to the Juke House. Saturday night, San Francisco, California, United States of America. We got to get that Juke House groove on, baby. Come on. Get another swig of water. Come on, y'all. City Records. This song ain't on it, but that's all right. Uh. What's going on, San Francisco? Boom, boom, room. Uh. Okay, so I know y'all know the type that I'm about to sing about. There's always, you know as well as I do, there's always one smart ass in the crowd, right? Or, or if you're a single man, every woman you talk to is married. It's almost the same difference. Uh, so here we go. Gonna tell the little story. Y'all know the type. A Miss Seymour Clear, she came over here. She got a bud bottle in her hand. She gonna tell me about her old man. But I tell you a little trip now, chick. You got to get your ass together with the slick. Cause we still the nastiest people that ever, ever did live, Miss Seymour. Grow. 
just singing about. Ah, somebody got it. Miss, that was my favorite show on TV. JJ, Florida. I don't remember what the daddy's name was. I know his name is James Evans. That's right. JJ, J, James Jr. Thelma, who, Winona. Oh yeah, that's the next door neighbor. Bookman, Buffalo Butt, they call it. Bookman. But John Amos, James Evan was just like my dad. He put the belt on your ass. Only with good calls. Oh, shit. All right, check this out. Just looking out of the window, watching the asphalt grow. I think of how it all looked hammered down. Keeping your head above water, a making away when you came, a temporary layoff, a temporary layoff, temporary layoff. Somebody did it. <laughs> a temporary layoff. A temporary layoff. Good times. 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 See if I try to rip off. Let me get my full metal jacket sergeant routine going on y'all's asses now.
Hey, y'all, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to hit y'all's ass with double off buckshot. We just, that was birdshot. We're coming up with some buckshot in a minute. Let me get another shot of Jägermeister. It might be a goddamn bazooka. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.